0: If you have to have a marketing campaign (laughs) that says, our thing works, we're sure it works, you've done something horribly wrong.
1: Yep, yep, (laughs) that's
0: right. That's kind of the assumption of most consumers is, yeah, if I buy this thing, it's gonna work. I'm Scott McGrew, welcome to Sand Hill Road.
2: BP added more than $70 billion to the US economy in 2022,
0: Sean Carolyn of Menlo invests in what you and I would consider normal stuff. Not big data or software as a service, but products like the Roku I'm using to stream Hamilton. or Or the original company behind Siri.
2: You are listening to Sand Hill Road, a Silicon Valley podcast.
0: Products he calls utilitarian consumer. Uh, it has its own challenges, of course. What
1: are challenges of consumer tech? Well, consumers are very finicky. With consumer, it's it's a little trickier because, you know, we are, as consumers, sometimes rational, sometimes irrational. And you really have to get down to the the basics, uh, goals of, of where people are. Are you know, what they think, what are their goals that they're trying to move towards. And, you know, this is termed in different ways, but we like to refer to it as, you know, the job to be done, which is a framework some people use. So every consumer has, hey, I want food on my table, clothes on my back, roof over my head. I have all these needs and I will use a piece of technology if it moves me towards those needs more quickly. Uh, And so sometimes that's pretty straightforward in the case of Uber. It was, right? You know, I used to have to go to the corner of, of uh, you know, in San Francisco, raise my hand for 15 minutes and wait for somebody to maybe pick me up. 15 then, minutes easily. Yes. <laughs> right. Uh, and then, you know, after Uber, the first time I tried it, it was, uh, I think, October of 2011. I was on the second floor at 3rd and Bryant. And by the time I walked down to the first floor, there was a car waiting for me. So that was just like, you know, super clear. Hey, I need to get from point A to B. And, you know, this is just a better, faster and cheaper way uh, to do it. So those are more predictable, but, you know, it's not always that that's clear cut.
0: It reminds me of the first time I took an Uber and I, Farhad Manju of the New York Times wrote a, uh, uh, I don't think he was at the Times at the time, but wrote a, uh, an article about it explaining to the world what Uber was. And he said, it's like being a millionaire. You know, you just beckon your black car and it shows up. Now, obviously today that is, that is routine, but it is kind of fun to think back to your first time you ever saw something and think, oh, this changes everything.
1: Yeah. And that's, I think Uber is a, a really profound example of that. If you think, how many taxis have you taken since you took that first Uber? It's probably, you know, you can count them on one hand. It's single digits, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right, and so it, it immediately replaced a frequently recurring behavior pattern. And that's really, I think, what we're looking for when we say what are going to be the next huge consumer hits, is you say, you know, this is something that people need you know, every day, every week, And once they are introduced to this better way of doing things, they're just going to change their behavior, uh, you know, immediately. And I think what's tricky is there's ways in which, you know, you're missing one piece of the equation and a bunch of people use it for, you know, a week or two weeks and then they're gone. And clearly you don't want to invest in those. You want to invest in the the staples that, you know, people – move their behavior and, and stay indefinitely.
0: I'll give you another example of something I saw for the first time, and it actually, you know, transitions into one of your investments. And that was uh, years and years and years ago, Anthony Wood showed me something he called Replay TV. And Replay TV has sort of been lost to history, but it it is, you know, it was the, the, the TiVo before TiVo. Uh, and he called me and said, have you, have you hooked it up? You know, it's like, oh, it's kind of a pain. You got to hook it up to your television. I haven't done it yet. I will. I will. It's some kind of VCR. Well, it's the DVR, right? And the minute I actually got that thing hooked up and paused live television, I went over to my neighbor's house and knocked on the door and said, you got to come over and see this. (laughs) Right. Defining away. moment in life. <laughs> yeah. Defining moment. Now, Anthony would later go on to to found Roku, which you have been an investor. In, in fact, I think you were one of the very earliest investors. We were,
1: yeah, yeah. I was. Uh, I joined the board in 2008 and was on uh, through the the IPO.
0: And what did you see in Roku? Uh,
1: so that's a, another sort of great example of this utilitarian approach where. You know, you could look at people's behavior then. You say, wow, it doesn't take a genius to figure out. This country watches a lot of TV. And then you say, to your early point, you know, he, Anthony founded Replay TV and was a huge part of why we were so attracted to him as an entrepreneur. Roku is the number six in Japanese. It was his sixth company. So here was a very experienced entrepreneur uh, with a really unique approach. Uh, I happen to be on the board of a company called Cinema Now at the time, which was streaming movies well before Netflix was. And every board meeting would end with, hey, where's the $99 box that gets this to the TV? You had to stream it to your laptop at that time. And so when I saw uh, Anthony, you know, they, the very first player was called the Netflix par- player by Roku. And it was completely without a hard drive. It just st- immediately, you know, you click a button and it starts streaming. You have the whole Netflix library there. But again, you can kind of pretty easily telegraph forward and you say, all right, every piece of video that I can consume over the internet now, eventually I'm going to be able to watch over Roku. All of the direct ad targeting that I do on the internet now, I'm going to be able to do on the Roku platform. This is a team, you know, Anthony, Mark Mark Goodwin, you know, for for, for several other of the really early employees, you just say, wow, these are world-class people who know what they're doing. And so, uh, you know took a, a big position pretty early on and, and stuck with him for 10 years. And it ended up very well for, uh, for
0: everybody. And then the other one that is a household name is Siri. Um, and this, you know, a lot of people don't realize Siri didn't start at Apple. Uh, and early on was not that great, but now it's hard to imagine, <laughs> you know, that, that you, I don't know how you'd manage without her. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's got
1: more competition now than when we invested. Oh, does uh, she ever? And actually, uh, I'm going to Alexa. ask you about you know some
0: of that uh, that that Apple misstep with uh, with uh, Amazon Alexa. But but yep. early on, what did you see in Siri?
1: Uh, Siri was interesting. It was actually three different theses that came together uh, in in the investment. One was this idea of of we just speak much more quickly than we type, and so if you say, "Wow, I can." talk at 160 words per minute. If I have a keyboard, I type at 80 words a minute. And if I have a smartphone screen and glass, I'm you know, 25, 30 words a minute. That's just a faster input, output mechanism. So that was one. Two, I was looking at these, uh, they call them chatterbots, but these virtual things on the internet, on the other end of AOL Instant Messenger, there was one called Smarter Child at the time. And it was just phenomenal for how bad It it was, I mean, it it was basically a glorified magic eight ball on the other end of the AIM channel. And it was, you know, millions of people sending billions of messages every month. So this idea of, hey, an illusion, there's another virtual personality on the other end of a communications channel that's willing to answer my questions, it just ignited something in the human imagination. And then third, this idea of what we now refer to as like the API economy that, all of these different uh, services on the internet will open up APIs. And so the original vision with Siri was not just calling people and and recording reminders and controlling your smartphone, but really interfacing with any internet service, right? You know, show me the five best pizza shops on Yelp that are nearby or, you know, book me a ticket to Arizona this weekend. You know, I want to leave Friday. Turn turn off the porch light. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, kind of anything you could do, whether it's you know within your local control or some destination on the internet, you could do through the voice. And so there too, we met uh, Doug Kitlis, and Adam Shire and Tom Gruber, the three founders who were at SRI working on this. And they had a very unique technical approach. That was not one that was like, oh my God, I've never heard of this before. It's been shown in many movies. But to actually get it to work, uh, natural language is just an extremely complicated technology to get right. And so they had a really unique uh, architecture to do it well and you know love the team and the vision and and obviously another one that kind of became a A big household name over time. We were really happy when Apple decided to keep the name because that was a big controversy. You know, would they keep it named Siri or not? And (laughs) unfortunately, they did.
0: When you saw it, you would not have been an expert in natural language. They were. But then again, there were a number of companies working on the same thing. What made you say to to yourself, no, these these guys are going to figure it out?
1: Yeah, excellent question, because, you know, this was something that it was, you know, staring you right in the face, like, hey, could you get it to work? Um, and a lot of, I think, investing, I mean, one is I just, I have a technical background myself. I was a, a double E uh, electrical engineering, computer science minor from Illinois uh, and double E major master's. So, you know, you kind of know enough about technology. I wasn't a great coder at that time, even though I had been after graduation for a number of years. And you just know what are the really hard computer science problems and what are the approaches that may work and um, you know that was one is just saying okay well how are you guys doing this you know what is it about the approach that you're using that's going to be different and they had an explanation probably a little bit out of scope for here but basically like let me look at all the words and then evaluate this sentence across all of the subdomains I cover you know it was not intended to be artificial general intelligence where you could ask it anything it was intended to hey here's you know 10 or 12 domains where we have expertise And I can look at this sentence and then decide, you know, which domain this is best suited. And then they, you know, do your magic to get an answer back. So that was that. And then they uh, had this project called Kalo at SRI, where $100 million plus had been invested, um, you know, for sort of government research. And this was building on that intellectual property. And so that, too... You know, you look at the SRI heritage, Nuance, which was one of the leading voice recognition engines, came out of SRI. So you sort of see a distinguished heritage. You see a lot of money that's been invested. You know, you see all the world's experts that are here working at it. And then you hear a logical explanation for why this approach is different and would work here. And, you know, pretty good demo, which was pretty frail. But <laughs> that's that's what early stage venture capital is about, is, is you know, this is a team an important enough problem that it deserves the capital. And obviously, you know, we join the board and really work hard to build a great team around it and keep everybody focused on the right things and always paying attention to what else is happening in the market. But, uh, you know, that's that's how the, the world starts to change is things like that happen one at a time.
2: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast.
0: I saw an illustration or read an illustration of how hard natural language is. It was, I dropped a metal ball on the glass table and it shattered. And and you and I both know that what shattered was the table. No computer can figure out what shattered. It is that, and how do you <laughs> teach a computer? You know? It is fascinating because,
1: you know, you and I and, most of the country learned to uh, speak and listen when we were three years old. So it comes very natural uh, to humans and the human mind. But it's kind of, you know, the magic of the way the brain is wired versus a CPU.
0: Did you have any opportunity to invest in in you know, something like Alexa or because Apple was late to that idea and Amazon just ran away with it. Google has, you know, a play there too, but Amazon ran away with it. Is that something you saw coming? There wouldn't really have been an opportunity to invest, I suppose, because these are established companies. Um, That's right. uh, But, but is that something that you saw coming? Definitely not from uh, Amazon
1: and, and, you know, what an incredible company they've been and the innovation. I mean, using their platform as a commerce engine, but, I mean, genuine uh, innovation, right? Amazon Web Services, uh, Alexa, you know, business model innovation with Prime. I mean, the company has just continued to, I think, impress, you know, me and the world as they've moved up uh, in their dominance in various areas. But uh, I definitely did not see it coming there. I definitely saw... This idea of, of of it becoming more and more approachable, you know, it's covering more domains, more accessible, right? You know, Dog had always wanted Siri launched as an app, and Dog always wanted that home button of uh, the iPhone where you just pushed it. So, so hey, the UI, how what, you know, set of things it can cover, the way it would interface with more and more things around. But, uh, you know, I guess the, the canister on the kitchen was a little bit unexpected because you have this phone in your pocket and you think, oh, it's not that hard to reach down into my pocket, you know, pull it out and ask for something. But the combination of like, you know, just always on, especially some of the use cases that are killer apps, right? Music control. I'm in the kitchen cooking. I want to hear a podcast or something, you know, setting timers, weather, you know, that category uh of, of just, you know, really low touch, easy to access things where it's just that much easier to and faster to, to ask something that's already sitting there listening versus go into your pocket or go find your phone. So those are where I mean, that's what makes consumer investing so fascinating is I think we're always moving towards computers just becoming more and more natural to interact with and disappearing and doing exactly what we want when we want it. Uh, and, you know, if you kind of Look at it now. It seems obvious. And the key is, you know, when you're looking at a company that walks in our door and has a story about that future, you know, does it map to this better, faster, cheaper framework? You know, are you accomplishing the same goals for the consumer, but using less of their time, less of their money or enhancing the experience somehow? And pretty much every consumer success Uh, I can explain, you know, using that framework in hindsight. And obviously we're trying our best to to look forward and do the same.
0: We've gotten much better at the technology being that simple, that most reasonable people can bring a gadget into their home and attach it to their Wi-Fi without having to call, you know, their nephew. Um, uh, It's been so much easier on my parents with that and things like Nest in which they can understand how to use it because it's intuitive. And it was not that long ago that you would get error code 157 and have not the faintest idea what, to do next. And now technology is, is either, well, the people engineering the technology have figured out the rest of us need this to just work. We don't care how it works. We just want it to work. Yep.
1: Yeah. Excellent point. And, and, you know, you said the people engineering, I think the the whole Valley and and the world has really woken up to the engineers are not the best people to do that. It's designers and every single consumer tech company that you know of has got exceptional designers on staff. And these are not just people who put visual polish and make, you know, the colors and the edges and the fonts, right. These are people who think deeply about, you know, what am I trying to accomplish here? What's the least number of things I can put on the screen so that the person can accomplish their goals? How do I place the buttons So they are very intuitive and you're not hunting pecking around. And, you know, you look at iPads today or, or a nest, like you said, uh, you know, versus, Windows 95. Or
0: right. Well, I remember well, Steve Jobs holding. That yes, Steve Jobs holding up the Apple remote for the first time at one of those demonstrations, and, and he, on the screen he's got a picture of a you know a Sony remote that has uh, let's say fifty buttons, and what does an Apple remote have? You know, three. Um, and he said, "We can get everything you want done in three buttons," and he was absolutely right.
1: If you just count the buttons theirs are over 40 and ours are six so i i don't know that there's ever been a slide that captures what apple's about as much as this one you know that is like you think about that that is is you know ten hundreds of hours of sessions with you know designers engineers product managers you know user researchers figuring out okay you know what situation are they what are they trying to accomplish And and you kind of keep polishing that until you get it, you know, very refined. So it looks easy at the end, but the process of getting it to that level of polish, polish and simplicity is really, really hard work.
0: One of your other investments is Chime, which is a, a bank with no locations. Um, I, I think we've all gotten used to using a bank app, and they've gotten better and better, the Chases and the Wells Fargo and whatnot. But initially, there was a lot of resistance to this idea that, hold on, I'm going to give my, ba- my money, my paycheck, direct deposit to a, play- to a bank that I can't walk into uh, and say, give me my money back. Uh, but Chime is is all sort of in the cloud, if you will, and then you have an ATM card and and an app, just like you do. Honestly, I don't go into Chase very often, um, so I, I yeah. see it now. But you saw it early, yeah.
1: And and th- that's a great example of you know what do you actually need from your bank, right? And and can you meet this in in a new world in a more cost effective, user friendlier way? And they do have ATM access, right? You
0: get a chime account and you can use. Oh, yes. And you can get your money any time. But there there, there is that initial resistance of now, hold on. If I can't if I can't walk into it, I'm not going to give you somebody in the eye. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And that's why I think, you know, you see the way
1: they've come to market is I mean, the, the fundamental innovation is really one of business model. If you think of most financial services providers, they make more money when they take more of your money, right? <laughs> like, what's an overdraft fee? It's a, it's a movement of, of 30 bucks, you know, from your bank account that you worked hard for into the coffers of whoever, you know, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, et cetera. And that's just, you know, that's not a great way to do business. They, they have, a lot of people have gotten used to that over decades, like, oh geez, you know, I went over a dollar and it's okay for my bank to steal $30 from my account. Chime kind of said, like, that's crazy. We, we are not going to make our money by finding our customers. We are going to make our money by um, debit card spend interchange. So when you, you know, take your debit card and just go through your regular life and spend it the way that you normally would, they take, you know, the same merchant fee that, you know, Visa takes. They get that as, as their revenue stream. And because of that very well aligned business model, they're able to do, you know, no overdraft. In fact, they give... It's called Spot Me. They have a feature where they give small loans. If you're somebody who has had a paycheck that's, you know, shown up for the last bunch of weeks, they'll just give you a loan between 20 and 100 bucks and say, hey, looks like you went over. It's OK. You know, we know you're good for your next paycheck. And all of a sudden your account, you know, shows a little bit more money or they get paid. They pay you two days early or. You know, there's a new product called uh, Credit Builder, where you have a, a Visa card that you, as you spend, it moves money, you know, from your account, but is building up your credit rating. So, because of that better cost structure and and you know different business model, they're just able to be a way friendlier service for exactly the same set of use cases.
0: Were there any things that you invested in that didn't work out, and conversely, are there things that you you wish you had invested in?
1: Oh, boy. That's a long list. Um, so uh, had invested. So, for sure, I mean, there's a lot of ways to be wrong. You know, one is you just pick the wrong company. And Cinema Now, I brought up at the beginning when we were talking about Roku, is a great example of that. We invested in 2004. They were a spin out from the Hollywood studios, which had the rights to stream movies over the Internet. Uh, but clearly it was the wrong company. You know, Netflix has come to dominate, you know, the world and, uh, cinema now didn't make it. And you kind of say, well, what happened there? Well, you know, they were on the Microsoft stack. And so the DRM made you have to download the whole movie before. Microsoft used Netflix to be, oh and- my
0: God, really? Oh, Microsoft, I was yeah. just going to interject. Microsoft used to have a thing. It was a marketing thing called something like plays for sure. And, and for, yeah. for something, yeah, if you have to have a marketing <laughs> campaign that says, our thing works, we're sure it works, you, you've you done something horribly wrong.
1: Yep, yep, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. It, that's kind of the assumption of most consumers is, yeah, if I buy this <laughs> thing, it's going to work. But... Uh so that was one. we just, you know, we picked the wrong company, right idea, wrong company. Uh, there's also just picking, you know, wrong ideas uh, or, or mis-executing. I started a company in the productivity space called Handle uh, back in 2011, and we were trying to do, you know, email to-do list, and calendar in one seamless productivity suite, and as a startup founder at that Case. It was uh, just, you know, tried to do too much at once, so learned a lot of lessons.
0: I don't think any podcast in 2020 can not ask the question about coronavirus. What are you are you investing now? It's particularly hard, I would think, with the consumer edge because, you know, you've got to go see these things work. Um, But are you investing now like everyone else is over Zoom and whatnot?
1: Uh, We are. We have closed, I think, two investments that uh, we decided on. Ahead of Corona, both in the healthcare space. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of, of sure. acute need for better healthcare infrastructure, uh, a company called Rivet Health and Particle Health. And then uh, there's three in legal right now that have sort of decided on since then. So look, I think, you know, if you look at just how uh, coronavirus has impacted the world, I mean, obviously, you know, tons of industries have really suffered in terms of jobs have been lost and, and there's, you know, hundred things that are going wrong because of it, we're more reliant on technology than ever before, right? I mean, you and I right now are talking remotely, right? Uh, a lot of people have had to move to their homes and, and keep, you know, working to keep their jobs going. And so the, the need for technology has has certainly either persisted or gone up and in some cases has gone, you know, way up. And so, you know, we're steering the investments towards those that are, uh, becoming even more and more acute needs you know with corona people that need to travel less you know one of the new investments is in the real estate space and how do you you know keep job sites on track and make sure mistakes aren't being made and, and keep up to date when you can't you know travel as much to visit the job sites so you know things like that edtech uh, where my wife is actually an investor she she runs a firm called reach capital that she founded you know edtech is going bonkers right everybody is learning from home now. So there's a bunch of industries that uh, still absolutely need to exist and even like more so. So that's where, where the time is focused.
0: I read a study that said that uh, some venture capitalists are reluctant to invest in companies that have a distributed employee base. Uh, your, would that be a factor in, in what you were investing in? You know, the, the many were working from home, One, one in Canada, one in Florida.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and I do feel like the the shift is happening right now. I think the big question that remains there: look, everybody's distributed now, right? <laughs> right. right. You see, the Twitter's and the Facebook saying, "Hey, we some of these jobs we're going to let people work from home indefinitely." the The biggest question, in my mind, is is if you never were together. I mean, you know, there's something about being face to face with someone where you can read their body language you know you can see the nonverbal communication it just it builds trust and it builds relationships and there's you know joy and, and other things that come from just being physically present with one another can you start you know super duper high performing companies where they the employees have never ever experienced that together that's a little bit you know remains to be seen i've certainly met companies in the past that have distributed we have a portfolio company now that's a distributed uh, company, but it's it's you know there's certain things that are just better <laughs> in person, so it's definitely not preferred still. And I think you know time will to show how quickly we can get back together here, but we don't think it's it's permanent. And uh, but we also there's a lot of things that are lower cost structure, right? Less less real estate costs, etc. That when you're a startup and, and operating on a very limited budget, it's uh, it's great to be able to save money without, you know, expensive San Francisco real estate and still be able to, to get the job done.
0: Let's end on just a a prediction, you know, what, what you feel in your gut and, you know, neither you nor I are virologists, so we can't predict the behavior of the, uh, of the pandemic or, or anything, but, but what do you, what are you planning on in the next, you know, six to 10 months? Well,
1: right when it hit, there was, it was super unclear. I mean, everybody, I mean, it was an unprecedented event, you know, for the world, even, you know, our, how much of our own health is at risk, you know, is everybody going to get this in the next couple of months, you know, can we stop this, right? So there was a lot of uncertainty. And I think the first couple months was how is this impacting different businesses, right? And, and so, you know, portfolio company, we have another one called ShipBob out of Chicago, you know, they are an e-commerce fulfillment service, all of a sudden, they said, Oh, my God, like, tons more people going to need e-commerce. So they are, whatever, 50% ahead of their plan. And, and so, you know, once a couple months went by, you got to see, all right, like if you're in e-commerce, if you're in education, if you're in remote work, uh, you know, video conferencing is, is an area we're very interested in. What's that next chapter of, of apps working at your desk from home look like? You know, it still feels pretty clunky to me, right? You got notifications popping up all the time, interrupting your attention. It's hard to manage all of your, your docs, right? Like there's, uh, you know, Zoom type functionality may disappear in all sorts of other apps as opposed to being this, you know, one place you click on a link and go to. So it's pretty clear. Here's a bunch of areas that are going to just continue to get more important. And it's pretty clear that we need technology, so it'll uh, flow. I mean, I'm definitely out of my league trying to guess macro economic or economic policy. I mean, clearly the world wants to get back uh, together and get back to their, their fun things. So I think, you know, as soon as we can manage to control and keep the numbers, you know, flat or down, uh, I think, you know, people will keep moving towards that.
0: Sean Carrollin of Menlo Ventures, investing in utilitarian consumer. Sandhill Road is produced by Sean Myers, under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes at PressHereTV.com.